Good to see everyone, all 50 of you, plus hopefully multitudes online. So good morning to you online if you're watching. Uh, this morning I'm going to be talking on the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Uh, this is actually one of the last miracles Jesus performed before he was crucified and then resurrected himself. So I'm going to go straight into the passage. It's found in John chapter 11 and only in John chapter 11. So reading in John chapter 11, I'll read it to you now. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. By the way, Thomas said that because the Jews had threatened Jesus previously, so he assumed they were going to their death. So verse 17, so when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Mary and Martha to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went to him and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Mary said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who was to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she rose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how much he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? 
Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid over the face of it. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha said, the sister of of the dead said, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, said to them, loose him and let him go. What an amazing story. What a long story. I, um, I spent about 20 minutes trying to figure out which Mary was Mary, the sister of Martha, if she was truly Mary Magdalene or another Mary in the text. So you can imagine how long this sermon took me to prepare. I'm not going to go through all of the details of this story. I simply don't have the time. Uh, I did listen to a sermon series on it. It was about three sermons long, and we don't have three sermons this morning. But I do want to point out a couple of the highlights here, because this is an amazing story. I mean, we know a human being once walked the planet who had power to command a dead body to come back to life. Isn't that incredible? Um, So let's highlight a few things in this story, and I think we'll start with the context, you know, where does this story take place in the life of Jesus or in the ministry of Jesus? So as I mentioned at the start, uh, this miracle is actually one of the last miracles that Jesus performed before the crucifixion. Uh, Most of you have probably not realized this, but the raising of Lazarus from the dead was actually the catalyst that led the um, religious leaders of the Jews to have Jesus put to death. So on account of Lazarus's resurrection, That's what provoked the jealousy of the Jewish leaders, which um, ended up having Jesus crucified only a few days after this event. So we read at the end of John chapter 11 that the the people, the the, the leaders felt threatened in their position of authority when Jesus' fame was growing because of this miracle. So in John chapter 11, verse 45, it says, many of the Jews had come to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did and believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them these things that Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And then in verse 53, it says, From that day on, the Jewish leaders plotted to put Jesus to death. And then just two verses later, in verse 55, John notes that the Passover of the Jews was near. And that the chief priests and Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should report it, that they might seize him. And then if we look over in John chapter 12, the very next chapter, in verse 10, we read that the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So the raising of Lazarus from the dead was a massive public event. Like it's what really gained traction in Jesus' ministry towards the end of his three-year ministry. And nobody, nobody was denying this was a truly supernatural miracle. None of the Jewish leaders stopped and said, oh, you know, I think he's playing magic tricks or anything like that. They could see that Lazarus had died, there were multiple witnesses, and that this Lazarus had now been raised from the dead after four days of being in a tomb. So if we go to the start of this story, 
Um, we see that Jesus has just been informed by a messenger that one of his friends in a different town is sick. And the sisters of the sick man, man being Lazarus, are sending this messenger to him to hope that he would come to them at once and heal their brother. Now, the family knows that Jesus is a miracle worker. He'd been performing miraculous healings on hundreds of people prior to this event, and that's why they sent for him. Lazarus was in need of a miracle, and Jesus had shown time and time again that he had the power to heal people of various kinds of sicknesses and diseases. In verse 5, we read, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, Jesus stayed two more days in the place where he was. Have you ever considered how strange this verse is? I mean, some people might even suggest that this sounds like a contradiction. You see, on the one hand, John writes that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and loved Lazarus. But then the very next line, he says that Jesus delayed himself two days before even coming to, to, to see Lazarus. The, the sisters are desperate for Jesus to come and to heal their brother. Um, but yet Jesus waited. So what we learn from this is... Um, God's timing is not the same as our timing, and we need to be willing to let God be God. See, Jesus is the center of the universe, not us. Now, that might come to a shock to some of you. Uh, we need to keep trusting in his goodness, even when it feels like he's delaying helping us in our desperate needs. I want you to imagine if you were one of these sisters and you heard the news that Jesus waited two days before coming to come help you when you're in need even though he knew the situation was urgent. When he finally did come, Martha said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Imagine the heartbreak of Mary and Martha, knowing that Jesus could have changed the outcome if only he had responded immediately to their call. This morning, we need to ask ourselves the question, why did Jesus in this story delay his coming? Is it because he didn't really care for Mary and Martha? Was he too busy to help them out? The same questions can be, helped, can be asked today when it appears that Jesus doesn't come to our rescue uh, in the way we were hoping. When we face trials and it feels like God is in a faraway land, um, are we going to deny that he loves us or continue to trust that God is in control and that he has a plan for our lives? As difficult as your circumstances may be this morning, I want you to know that God does care and that he doesn't delay without reason. Uh, we don't always know why God doesn't answer some of our prayers, but we can be certain of this. God wants to reveal more of himself to us. Jesus says in, in the verses above, um, prior to this slide, <laughs> I think, uh, that it was for the glory of God that Jesus was going to come and perform this miracle. And we need to remember that when God intervenes in our lives it's for the glory of God it's to reveal something about God to us it's to deepen our faith it's to strengthen us in our weaknesses it's to know that he is still there even in the midst of our sufferings so in the case of this uh, story the reason Jesus waited two days was probably because he wanted Lazarus to be in the tomb for four days before performing a miracle you see the Jews in the first century had this strange tradition um, that the spirit of the deceased person dwelt near the body for up to three days and might potentially re-enter the body and the person would come back to life. And so um, by the fourth day, they were convinced that a person was well and truly dead and that the spirit had then departed and moved on. So that's a little bit of historical insight. Now, lest we think that's really an odd belief, you can understand that kind of thinking if you think about what we learnt in school 
I guess most of us, uh, in the 19th century in England, we heard about things like grave bells and safety coffins. And uh, these are horrific stories of um, people finding out that they've actually buried someone alive. And the reason they were able to find this out was that they noticed when they lifted a, 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 a casket, they, they'd sometimes find nail marks on the inside of a casket. And so, yeah, sorry to freak some people out. I hope there's no children watching. Um, no, just kidding. I'm not going to get graphic. But to prevent these mistaken deaths, they used, to, they used to put a string inside the coffin so that if the person happened to revive in, in the uh, coffin, they could pull the string, it would ring a bell, and then they could quickly, hopefully, dig them up in time so that they wouldn't die, actually, for real. So the Jews didn't have that sort of thing, but they did believe that perhaps after three days, there was no chance, there was no hope. Mary herself, I mean, Martha herself, um, acknowledged this when she said, Lord, by the fourth day, there's a stench. You know, the body's decomposing. This is not, there's no hope for him. We shouldn't roll the stone away. There's, he's dead. He's well and truly dead. Like, let the dead be dead. So the reason why he um, delayed his coming is because he wanted to show that this truly was a miracle from God. Now, when he first heard that Lazarus was sick, Jesus responded, this sickness will not end in death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Uh, Jesus knew that Lazarus would die, but that it would be an opportunity to perform a miracle that would not only bring glory to God, but specifically, Jesus said, the way it would bring glory to God would be by bringing glory to the Son of God. Now, this is that concept of the Trinity again, that Jesus shares the glory of the Father. Uh, In the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, Jesus said when he was praying to the Father in heaven, um, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory I shared with you before the world was. And so in that prayer, he acknowledged that he had an existence prior to being on earth, and he shared the glory of the Father in heaven. Now, do you remember why the Apostle John wrote his gospel account? You know, he only, he only mentions, I think, about seven miracles in his account, but they were for a specific purpose. We read in John chapter 20, verse 30, um, John was writing and he said, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John wants us, the readers, to come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God and that whoever puts their trust in Him will receive the forgiveness of sins and be raised from the dead and spend eternity with Him. That was the purpose of John's writing, so that you could know the Son of God and have everlasting life. So before we go any further, we need to ask the question, what does the Bible authors mean when they call Jesus the Son of God? See, it doesn't matter what we think we mean. What matters is what the Bible says Son of God means, what the original um, audience would have understood the Son of God to mean. All four accounts, all four gospel accounts, refer to Jesus as the Son of God, and they all have the same conclusion about it. So in Luke chapter 1, it's the story of the angel Gabriel visiting a virgin named Mary. And he appeared to her in, in verse 30 of Luke chapter 1 and said, "'Do not be afraid, Mary.' For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? 
And the angel answered her and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So Jesus was supernaturally conceived in the body of the Virgin Mary. And the angel Gabriel explains that this is why Jesus would be called the Son of God. Even though Jesus became a human being, his true origin is from heaven. Jesus says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. See, Jesus was sent. Jesus's origin is from the presence of God in heaven. So in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, Matthew himself explains about the uh, virgin birth and says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In John's gospel, we get further confirmation concerning the origin and deity of Jesus. In John 1, we read about the creation of the world, and John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It says, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made um, through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. And then in verse 14 of chapter 1, we read, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So what we learn from John chapter 1 is that the Son of God eternally existed before the creation of the world, and that He Himself is the creator of the universe. But at a point in time through the Virgin Mary, God entered our humanity and became human. By calling Himself the Son of God, Jesus was not saying that God created Him, he was claiming equality with the eternal God. Now, to prove this, we can see it clearly all through the Gospel of John, for example. So, John chapter 5, verse 18, it says, The Jews sought all the more to kill Jesus, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Now, lest there be any doubts about who Jesus thought he was, the very next verses in John 5 records the dialogue where Jesus explains to his Jewish audience that he has the ability to raise the dead and that he himself will be the one who judges the world. So it says in John chapter 5, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Father... Sorry, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So the Jews understood clearly that Jesus was claiming to be the God of Israel, which is one of the reasons they wanted to put him to death. In John 19, we read at the trial of Jesus, when he was on trial before Pontius Pilate, the Jews said to Pilate, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. The Jews understood very clearly what Jesus was claiming by calling himself the Son of God. So when we consider this miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, I want us to remember the underlying motivation was to prove that Jesus was the creator God who could give life to the whole earth. Um, the way that this miracle will bring glory to God would be by bringing glory to Jesus, the Son of God, and it verifies that he is the life giver. He is the reason the universe exists. He is the reason there's life on our earth because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Now, if we go back to our story and we zoom in uh, on his exchange with Martha, it says, now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. What a statement of faith. 
You know, Martha knew that Jesus had the power to heal her brother while he was still alive. And even though her brother had now died and had been buried for four days, Martha still maintains that Jesus can ask anything from God and God will give it to him. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again at the resurrection of the last day. See, Martha was orthodox in her beliefs. She knew that the uh, Jews had been promised uh, a resurrection in the future. Death would not be the end forever. I mean, the Apostle Paul also shared this, this Jewish hope um, that they received from the Old Testament. So in Acts chapter 24, when Paul gave his defense before the Roman governor, Paul said, I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the righteous and of the unrighteous. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. So the Jews had a belief that God would raise all of the dead who ever lived at a future point in time. Um, There's many passages in the Old Testament that explain this. I'm only going to go through um, one small section in Daniel chapter 12. So in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, it says, um, and Daniel's receiving this as a a vision um, about 600 years before Jesus. It says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And then at the end of Daniel chapter 12, it was promised to him that he would be rewarded for his faithfulness. Daniel chapter 12, verse 13, you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of days. So Daniel had a hope that God would raise him from the dead, that this wasn't final. Our death in this life is not final. The book of Hebrews said it's appointed once for man to die and then to face the judgment. But for those who are in Christ, for those who have a relationship with God, who've been forgiven of their sins because they've trusted in Christ, we have a glorious future ahead of us. We have a glorious hope. You know, we have something to look forward to. Darren was right in saying this isn't our home right here. We're strangers in this land. This is a land full of disease and death and and sin. This is a place where people hurt one another. The very first children being born into this world, you have Cain and Abel. What is... What takes place? Cain rises up and murders his brother Abel. You know, this is a wicked world that has rebelled against God, that has alienated itself from the life of God. But when we put our trust in Jesus, who is our King, who is our Savior, who was raised from the dead, Jesus promises to bring us into his everlasting kingdom where death will be no more. Uh, John chapter 5, verse 25, Jesus taught the people, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Jesus is the one who is going to raise every dead person who has ever lived on the last day. Therefore, he has power to raise Lazarus in this story. He has power to raise him even now. So no religious leader has ever claimed this kind of power or claimed that they are the judge of the world or claimed that they have resurrection life. You know, he, I often get into debates with people who try to tell me Jesus is just an enlightened figure. I'm sorry to keep, be, keep beating on this one point, but 
I have one friend in particular who always tells me that, you know, Jesus is just, you know, he, he discovered the secret of life. He discovered this, this hidden knowledge, this mystical power. But Jesus didn't talk about some mystical thing that he'd found. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He himself would be the one that raises the dead. You, you don't gain that power. You can't somehow by meditation or by any of these other practices somehow ascend to some spiritual ethereal world. No, no, no. There will be a physical bodily resurrection at the end of days. Every body in the grave will hear the voice of the Son of God and be raised on that last day, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt and judgment. So weirdly, the number one objection I have I hear from people when I teach this, besides the fact, of course, I'm teaching straight from the Bible, is um, how can this be when there's people that have been cremated? Or what do we do about people who have died in house fires? And people refuse, even to this day, to believe that there can be a bodily resurrection because cremation exists. It seems so strange to me, but I just want to answer this one just briefly. Lazarus was in the tomb for four days. There's a decomposing body in there that smells And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And instantaneously, that body is perfectly healed and made well. He stands up and walks out of the tomb. You know, Jesus himself, later on in this story, will be crucified after being beaten half to death by Roman soldiers. His body is scarred and marred. And yet, Jesus, three days later, comes out of the tomb in perfect health, is walking the Emmaus Road with the disciples, revealing himself as the resurrected Messiah. And, you know, he's in perfect health. He's able to say, hey, touch the nail prints of my hands. He doesn't wince at the thought of someone touching his wounds because he is perfectly healed. And so Jesus, who created the world from nothing, you know, Jesus who birthed our universe into existence, this Jesus, this creator God, like the idea of raising someone who is cremated from the dead is a a small thing. He can gather every one of those dust particles and put them back together. There is no escaping the power of God who has the power to create the stars, the galaxies, who created all life on earth. There is no stopping him from raising any one of us from the dead. And for the believer, this gives us wonderful hope. We have wonderful hope after the grave. But again, for the non-believer, for the person who rejects Jesus' right to reign over their lives, you're going to face him on judgment day and you're going to have to give an account of your life. And there's no escaping. Death is not an escape because he will raise you from the dead and he will call you to account on the things that you've done in the body. Now, if we have a look at the brief exchange with Mary, the younger sister of Martha, it says, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? I just want to focus on that one little statement, Jesus wept. You know, I could preach a whole sermon, or a whole sermon series probably on those two little words. But I just want to point out just some small details in this, and that is Jesus, um, although eternally existing with the Father, he did truly take on our humanity. Jesus truly did feel emotion. He was a flesh and blood human being like you and I, and uh, he was touched by this experience. You know, even though 
he knew that he would raise Lazarus from the dead. He'd already proclaimed that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. When he saw Mary weeping and when he saw the Jews weeping around her, it broke his heart, you know, and Jesus joined in their sorrow. We read in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, we as Christians were instructed to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And Jesus modeled this for us. So what we learn from Jesus in his humanity is that real men can shed tears and be vulnerable around friends and family. Some of you husbands and fathers need to hear this. If you want to be an imitator of Christ, if you want to follow his example, you need to be vulnerable uh, with those who are close to you. You need to be willing to shed tears. It's a manly thing to be able to do that. It's a Christ-like thing. Interestingly, in the mind of the first century Greeks, the primary characteristic of their version of God was apatheia. So God was to believed to um, be unable to feel any emotion at all. The Greeks believed in an isolated, passionless, and compassionless God. However, in Jesus, we learn that we have a God who empathizes with our pain and weeps with us. Death, separation, violence, abuse, oppression, these are all the result of the human race forsaking God. And we've all descended from Adam and Eve, and we've all been part of that rebellious race who's rejected God's rule over our lives. But Jesus doesn't turn a blind eye to our pain and sorrow. We have a God who weeps with us at the thought of loss, because this wasn't God's intention for the human race. Um, it actually says that death is the enemy of the human race, which will finally be destroyed by the Lord Jesus when he returns to set up his kingdom on the new earth. In the last scene of our story, we read in verse 38, Jesus groaned in himself and came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. One thing that's interesting about this, this final scene is that Jesus invites us or invites the, the onlookers to this gravesite to actually unbind Lazarus. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I shared the story about Jesus feeding the 5,000 with the five loaves and the two fish. And I, I mentioned that although Jesus did the supernatural work of multiplying food, proving that he was the creator, he then sent the disciples to go and to distribute that food. So he invited the disciples into that creative miracle. And in the same way here, Jesus is the one who has commanded Lazarus to come out of the tomb. Jesus is the reason that this decomposing body is now in full health. I mean, he could have easily taken off the grave clothes himself, but instead he invites those around to unwrap Lazarus. And so I just think it's really cool that we have a miracle working God who invites us in to these supernatural miracles. And the miracles that he performs today too, in answer to prayer and um, in various other ways, he invites us to participate in his miraculous power. Now imagine the joy of Mary and Martha at the sight of their brother coming out of the grave. This scene is a foreshadowing 
of our future resurrection when all believers are resurrected and reunited with loved ones. And we see here that Jesus is right there in the midst with them. You know, I remember reading over and over again this passage and doing a word search on Lazarus. I tried to find every spot in the Bible where Lazarus is mentioned, and it's all really concentrated in this one little section of Scripture. But in uh, the next scene, you see Lazarus in John chapter 12. He's reclining around the table with the disciples and with Jesus, and he's having a meal. Isn't that a wonderful picture? After our resurrection, we're going to be reclining with the Lord Jesus around a meal, around the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a glorious time it'll be with all of the saints who have passed on before us. We're going to share in that. It says in, uh, oops, it says in Thessalonians chapter 4, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. It's a comforting thought that we're going to always be together with the Lord Jesus forever and ever in eternity. And where the Lord Jesus is, that's where heaven is. Jesus is the revelation of heaven on earth. Because where Jesus is, there's no more sickness. Where Jesus is, there's no more death. Where Jesus is, there's perfect unity and fellowship and sin is no more. What a beautiful picture. Revelation chapter 21 verse 3 says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. This is a long message. I'm just going to skip those pages. No? All right. We'll, we'll cover some of them. No, but really, the message is clear. Like, we have a resurrected Savior. We have a living Savior. Jesus, only a few days after this, himself, is taken up at the hands of the Romans, is crucified. And three days later, his tomb was empty. But his grave clothes didn't need to be taken off. His grave clothes were found folded and in a corner in the room. The Lord Jesus has come out of the grave and he's never to return to the grave. We read in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus told the apostle John, I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has the authority. He has the keys of both death and the grave. And the Lord Jesus has defeated both of them. And the Lord Jesus will empty every tomb and bring every person back to life who's ever lived. And so the only hope we have this morning is to come to this living Jesus, this man who walked the earth 2,000 years ago, and to realize that apart from him, there's no forgiveness of sins. And apart from him, there is no resurrection. But in him, we have hope of everlasting life. So if you're listening to this, um, either the 50 here or you who are online, I just want you to know that if you put your trust in Jesus, if you put your confidence in Him, He will forgive you of your sins, and He will raise you from the dead, and you'll spend eternity with Him and eternity with us. And there'll be no more death, there'll be no more pain. The former things will be forgotten. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. He loves you. Don't ever doubt that God loves you. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever should believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. I'm going to pass it back now to Darren. Thank you.
Thank you, Josh. If you've never asked Jesus Christ into your life, most of you here have, but if you've never asked him into your life, this is the perfect time to do it. See, Jesus promises life. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. But life is not pie in the sky when you die by and by. Life starts now. He gives you power to live now. He gives you eternal life now to face whatever it is you're facing. So I don't want to let this moment go past without giving you the opportunity to ask Jesus into your life. If you're online, if, to ask Jesus Christ into your life right now because he loves you, as we've heard, because he has a, a hope and a future for you that will last for all eternity. And uh, maybe you've not been walking close to him. This is your moment to step back into that relationship in a, in a more full way. Because life starts now. I don't want to wait till I'm dead to live. It starts now and lasts for eternity. So let's just bow your heads with us. If you've never asked Jesus into your life, now's a perfect time to do it. Say these words with me. Lord Jesus, I know that I've sinned. And that I'm destined to an eternity of death. But right now, I ask you to forgive my sin. And I ask you into my life as my Lord and my Savior. <coughs> Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And let me live the life you have planned for me starting now. And into eternity. And for those of you who know the Lord, I just want to invite you to step right back closer into this relationship, this relationship of, of life that he has. Jesus Christ did not die to make good men, sorry, bad men good. He died to make dead men live. And this is our opportunity to live for him. If you love Jesus, say these words with me, Lord Jesus, let my life reflect your life. Let me live for you, and I thank you for the hope that you've given us, that we will live with you forever in your kingdom. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, and let me live a life of triumph, being a witness for you in this world. Lord, I pray that you've heard these prayers, hearts that are turned to you saying, Lord, let your life flow through us again and again and again, more and more, that we might be witnesses in this world. Father, fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might be able to proclaim your life and your love to our generation who so desperately needs it. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said...